Always great to have him. He's David Birdsell, of course, by Provost King University. Lots of happening in the world these days. We welcome in David. Sir, so much going on. It's good having you. Everything okay? Everything is great, Jay. Great to be here this morning. Indeed. How about the president's trip, four in the morning, uh, a couple of days ago? Sight unseen and landing, uh, landing there and heading to Ukraine. Uh, how about that as far as a historic moment, uh, my friend? What'd you make out of that? Well, I thought it was a bold maneuver. It clearly bolstered the morale of the Ukrainians, which was part of the goal, uh, but also to demonstrate to the world and particularly to the Russians that America is prepared to stand firm uh, in support of Ukraine in their efforts to liberate territory uh, and, in fact, the entire nation from Russian aggression. Uh, and I thought that was very impressive. This was the very first time that an American president went into a combat area without U.S. troops already deployed in that area. Uh, so this was precedent-setting. It was clearly headline-grabbing. Uh, and it led to an interesting side-by-side comparison of major foreign policy speeches and world order speeches uh, from both President Biden uh, and Vladimir Putin just yesterday. Question. Uh, it was almost as far as the duel of speeches uh, with uh, his state of the address in Putin and, of course, uh, before the cameras of Mike, Mr. Biden, over in Warsaw. Uh, that was kind of an interesting uh, component right there as far as making those uh, very important statements on each end. Oh, absolutely. You could not ask for a sharper contrast coming out of the mouths of the two people who are representing what we have to understand increasingly as different poles of an understanding of how the world should work. Uh, President Biden offering yesterday a vigorous defense of democracy, a vigorous defense of national self-determination. Uh, and Mr. Putin saying, as frankly as he could possibly have said it, uh, that he intends to take over Ukraine. He was not limiting himself to the eastern provinces. He said that this was a war against Nazification of Western Europe, that it was an effort to repel uh, a NATO attack on Russia, which, is, of course, this is nothing of the kind. Uh, and there's a large mythology bought into by people all around the globe, including some in this country, uh, that the Russian response on February 24th, we are one day away from the one-year anniversary of this horrific incursion, uh, is somehow or another prompted by NATO action uh, when there was no NATO action that could possibly in real time at that moment have prompted this attack. Uh, so it was all laid out as starkly as you possibly could, and we're seeing the uh, global alignments taking place right now with non-aligned nations that are nonetheless cooperating with both poles in this contest, and I'm thinking of nations like South Africa, uh, increasingly pressured uh, to jump into one camp or another, and it's a very, very volatile situation worldwide right now. Previously claimed neutrality on this war, uh, David, but Putin welcoming in their top diplomat a couple of days ago, Wang Yi to Moscow. Uh, it's a signal, at least that visit is seen, that the relationship uh, between China and Russia still remains strong, will not be strained by this war in Ukraine. Uh, what's your take there? Well, I think that that's, uh, that, that is exactly what the Chinese are saying, that uh, this relationship has already been 
uh, strained. Uh, it was just a matter of weeks after the announcement of a special relationship between Russia and China last year uh, that uh, Mr. Putin launched his invasion. Uh, and the discomfort among Chinese senior leadership in the immediate aftermath of that invasion was palpable. Uh, they have issued a number of statements uh, warning against the use of nuclear weapons. That can only mean Mr. Putin, since he's the only person who has threatened the use of nuclear weapons. There are other Russians who have, too, Dmitry Medvedev and others, but uh, that's only come from the Russian side. Uh, and so that has to be seen to a certain extent as a brushback. Uh, they are issuing imminently... The exact schedule is unclear, but the exact number of pages has been made clear. A 128-page paper that they are describing as a position paper. They've been very careful to say that will not be a peace plan, uh, but to say how it is that they understand this aggression. Uh, they are jumping on the bandwagon of this having been a NATO provocation. And, of course, one of the things they want to do is stand aside groups that are set up to try to reinforce some kind of a global order, be that an economic order, uh, under the WTO, be that a defense order under NATO, uh, and then claim that what that involves is a kind of aggression and an imposition of Western values on other nations, notably China. And they see Russia as an ally in trying to uh, overthrow those kinds of consensus multilateral regimes, which are, to be sure, not bought into by every nation uh, in the world. Uh, there's an effort among the Ukrainians right now and their allies uh, which includes us, of course, uh, to try to muster a vote in the General Assembly of the United Nations uh, to uh, to call out this kind of uh, objection to multilateral rulemaking. Um, and that will be an interesting thing to see, particularly in light of this position paper, as the Chinese are calling it, uh, when that is finally issued, presumably later this month. With us. So, in essence, if you had to put a number on it, what DEFCOM level are we at as far as relationships uh, with China at this point in time? Where do you see it? The relationship with China is, is in, in very serious shape right now. And I, I, I hesitate to put a number on it because the situation is very fluid. I, I, we have several challenges happening simultaneously here. One, uh, is President Biden's decision to impose uh, truly serious uh, trade and material restrictions on the Chinese, particularly access to uh, semiconductor technologies and the chips themselves, uh, to prevent their ability to rapidly uh, uh, incorporate the most sophisticated chips in the world into weapons and AI systems that could be weaponized down the road. Uh, and Xi Jinping himself said as recently as yesterday that that requires the Chinese to fundamentally rethink how they are uh, understanding and how they plan to accelerate their ability to produce chips onshore in the People's Republic of China. Uh, remember that the most sophisticated chip boundaries in the world are not in China. They're in Taiwan. Um, and that is one of the reasons why Taiwan, just to pivot to the next issue, uh, so the first issue is this, this series of trade material access and the military linkages. But then that immediately uh, pulls into question number two, the situation of Taiwan, the concern that what Ukraine and Russia's aggression against Ukraine augurs uh, is kind of a, a dry run a half a world away about what China might be thinking about, for better and for worse, about Taiwan. Uh, but that chip foundry piece is a huge element of China's calculations with regard to what they believe to be legitimately their own territory, and of course has not been since the 
Second World War. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to ponder in that relationship. We add to that, number three, the massive increase of Chinese military power uh, since Xi Jinping assumed office 10 years ago. Uh, we're, they are now the largest navy in the world. Uh, they have been for a long time the largest army in the world. Uh, but they lack the sophistication, the technologies in some areas, while at the same time threatening U.S. superiority in areas like hypersonics and the weaponization of AI. So there's, there's a lot to think about right now. And if we put in a kind of match in the powder keg, which is this Ukrainian conflict, uh, how both countries, which I believe both have very, very strong uh, incentives to back down from clash and conflict, uh, it's harder and harder to do while saving face the more that these events go on. And of course, we could throw in the spy balloon, we could throw in the weaponization of islands and the uh, uh, South China Sea. We could throw in the incursions on the territory of free nations uh, in that region of the world. Uh, there's a lot to think about, and I would say that this is probably the most volatile and dangerous time in Chinese-American relations since Nixon went to China. Wuhan lab and everything else you throw into the uh, into the mix. I mean, it certainly uh, has not helped the cause. Now, this also with a threat coming by way of the United States to China regarding aiding Russia. How viable you think that threat is? How does China take it? I think China takes that threat very seriously. Uh, the, what their their biggest concern at this stage, uh, in some respects, has to be. Their, their, the, the, the restarting of their economy. Remember, China has been through a three-year period of COVID lockdowns uh, that are, by many measures, the most severe in the world. And one of the sectors that has taken the biggest hit in China is manufacturing. Uh, Chinese manufacturing plummeted during this period of time. Uh, it's upended the real estate market. They have a demographic crisis on top of that because of the one-child policy, which is now seen for the first time in the post-war era, a, or actually, I guess I should say since the uh, Cultural Revolution, but uh, uh, a, a rollback in Chinese population. And that's going to continue. Uh, they're already, in terms of median age, older than the United States. And that's going to accelerate far faster than in many nations because of the imposition of this one-child policy, which accelerated dramatically uh, a a phenomenon that we see in all developing nations is you get further developed economically, uh, families tend to have fewer children. And so that would have taken place naturally, but China accelerated it by enforced one-child families over a period of decades. So put all of that together, you have a, uh, a stalled industrial base, which, which appears to be recovering right now, but you've got to sustain the international markets to make that happen. So the last thing that you want, uh, if you're Xi Jinping right now, is to have an aggressive policy restricting your access to markets. And that is the most likely response of the United States if, indeed, they begin to provide lethal aid to the Russians in this Ukraine conflict. So there's, there's a lot that the U.S. can do here. Uh, and I, I believe the evidence is, uh, and you've got to give the Biden administration a lot of credit here, uh, holding the Western alliance together uh, to enforce economic sanctions and provide military assistance. China doesn't want to be downwind of that kind of united Western bloc. Question, and you know, you look at these numbers now, it's about $113 uh, billion dollars. 
uh, David, already given to Ukraine regarding military aid, the training, and everything else. I mean, you know, you talk about other nations and everything else. Germany, you know, has been very light in the assistance. Uh, recently, tanks given, great. You can use more from others, but, you know, the United States continuing. A lot of people are kind of questioning this open checkbook uh, to Ukraine at a period of time in which, you know, our own land can use a little help here. Uh, we can get into that. But $113 billion, uh, give or take here, uh, an awful lot of dollars. Uh, do you um, do you understand, I guess, some of the pushback? Now, listen, let's be fair here. It's coming from Republicans mainly. But in, in essence, is it the right way of thinking? My sense is that, at least for right now, it's not. For the long term, it is. Let's look at what that investment uh, gets us. Uh, right now, the Ukrainians are, by most accounts, and obviously we don't know all the inner workings of the defense industry and the military uh, organizations in Russia, uh, but the best intelligence that we have that's been made public is that Russia is uh, expending at speed all of its most sophisticated weaponry, and by many accounts has already used up to 80% of it. Uh, they have uh, squandered their uh, armored vehicle capacity. Uh, they have squandered uh, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. They have seen their technical elite leave the country to the tune of even hundreds of thousands more people um, you've seen particularly sharp uh, uh, declines in the fighting age and working age male population as people seek to avoid the conscription regime that uh, Mr. Putin has put into place. Uh, in some respects, if you were looking at how effectively to counter a very important uh, rival state, this is a bargain. Um, and I think that's one of the things to think about long term. Uh, it's also important to think long term in uh, about what would have happened if we had not uh, lent this aid and we had allowed Vladimir Putin to take Ukraine in its entirety. At that point, you would have an emboldened Russia uh, that believes that it could reabsorb uh, states of the former Soviet Union. It would put uh, Estonia at risk. It might put Poland at risk. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that you've seen the Poles, uh, historically a relatively insular country, at least in the post-war era, suspicious of foreigners, uh, embrace Ukrainians. In fact, take in more Ukrainians as refugees uh, and, and per capita in terms of percentage of the population uh, than any other country in the world. So the, the, the ability to reorganize an energetic uh, Western military alliance the ability to reorganize an energetic Western economic alliance, uh, this is a relatively inexpensive way to get that done. Long term, we want to see more of what we're already beginning to see. And I just alluded to the kinds of changes in Polish spending. Uh, you mentioned that Germany has been slow to this, but their, their spending and their material assistance is growing. Uh, you now see German governments that previously would never have thought about expanding the military budget doing exactly that. Uh, the British responses with tanks, with uh, additional military spending on that side, this is setting into motion a set of uh, activities that if you believe the West needs to be strong and think about its defense, uh, is a very 
good thing uh, and probably a relatively inexpensive way uh, to get done some of the things that the United States need to be done. Uh, that, that said, long term, we absolutely need to continue to build our allies' capacity to invest. Um, and we do need, uh, as the Biden administration uh, recognized in the infrastructure bills that passed, uh, the need to invest in the United States. Uh, and that is absolutely critical for economic reasons, for uh, community success reasons, for environmental reasons. Uh, and as we saw in East Palestine, for the safety of our transportation, which, of course, are, you know, as soon as I say transportation networks, that means our commercial networks as well and our ability to sustain the economy. So very critical to have that pivot at some point down the road. But right now, I think we're where we want to be. Now listen, I kind of agree. I'm a little torn on uh, the $113 billion. I think it's necessary, though. You have to maintain that presence, especially with China in the mix right now. China and Russia right now. Uh, from an economic standpoint, military standpoint, is vital. No question. Uh, but I am torn. And I'm torn about a lot of things as far as this country, especially with what's happening in East Palestine, Ohio. Three weeks since this train wreck uh, in this small Ohio community, David. Uh, the NTSB, to release its preliminary report on the derailment, I think it's today. And it's all amid yep. these mounting questions of how Norfolk Southern, as a trains operator, uh, has handled the incident and mechanical failures that may have preceded it. The residents there voicing frustrations beyond, uh, you know, speaking of the governor, DeWine, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, whatnot, demanding answers. They're not getting a lot. EPA's there drinking the water, a nice photo op there. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't relieve the tensions. Finally, you've got the transportation secretary who's making his way due to public pressure, no question, in Mr. Buttigieg. Um, the former president was there yesterday. I mean, it is a growing disaster, and you wonder where is everybody in this in this country as far as heads of state getting an assessment going? You finally get uh, Mayor Pete heading there. I mean, it's a disaster. Well, this is clear, clearly a disaster in terms of uh, the, the the nature of the accident and how it came about. And I'll say a couple of things in a moment about rail safety overall and how we. Uh, shepherd those operations. But if, if we look at, and there are about a thousand train derailments uh, in the United States each year. Uh, many of them involve uh, the spill of hazardous cargoes, uh, and we don't typically have uh, presidents or cabinet secretaries going to those events. Uh, this is a case, and what uh, uh, the Transportation Secretary has argued is that he didn't want to be there prior to the release of the NTSB report, National Transportation Safety Bureau, uh, so that he wouldn't be seen to be interfering in the judgments that they that they render. He will be there today, and clearly he is under a lot of pressure. But I think it's interesting, if we look at uh, EPA uh, Administrator Regan, uh, he's under no pressure, and he's not a politically significant uh, actor of the Democratic Party. The cleanup operation and the assessment of what spilled and how, you, how to, how to rem- remediate that spill that's not a transportation issue. It's an EPA issue. But he's come under no pressure because he's not a Democratic Party star and a potential presidential candidate. So I think there's a lot of uh, politics that people are playing here. And I think it's not insignificant uh, that two potential Republican presidential uh, candidates uh, in the two senators from Florida have been leading the charge here uh, against uh, the administration in terms of an oil uh, of a train derailment in Ohio. Um, but, you know, that said, uh, if we look at what might have pre- 
prevented this. You referred to, uh, uh, quite accurately, a, a mechanical issue. It looks like there was a wheel bearing, uh, and this based on video uh, captured from uh, rail side uh, cameras. Uh, it looks like there was a wheel bearing that was failing uh, a couple of dozen miles uh, prior to the actual derailment, and that it had already slowed the train to about half of its usual speed. Um, so it could be that the, the efficient cause here uh, is the need for better braking technologies, which was actually technology that was proposed in the Obama administration, killed in the Trump administration. Now, I think it's important to say it wouldn't have applied to this train because this train was not judged to be carrying highly flammable materials. And it was Norfolk Southern's decision to burn off the, the, the chemicals rather than risk an explosion. We'll, we'll have endless discussions about the wisdom or ill wisdom of that choice uh but the the rule would have helped if it would have applied to the train but it wouldn't have applied to the train even if it were uh allowed to stand during the trump administration but with clear necessity here as as we have restricted the kinds of chemicals that can be transported on trucks what's happened is that those chemicals which are necessary for a whole range of industrial purposes have been moved to trains that means we have to think about how we ensure the safety of those trains. And that means the trains themselves, that means the way that they're operated, also killed during the Trump administration was a requirement that there be at least two people uh, on the train at all times, staff members ensuring the safety of the vehicles. Uh, oftentimes trains have only one person, but you have the engineer, and that's it. Um, that's efficient from an economic point of view, but it's potentially disastrous from a safety point of view. We also need to think about the condition of the tracks. That's one of the things that the infrastructure bills uh, passed in this administration will begin to address. But we need to do that in a very serious way and do it at speed. Last point I want to make here. Uh, Governor DeWine has asked that he and all governors be informed when there are trains passing through their territories that have potentially hazardous materials. And this suggested that he wants the ability to restrict that. That is... I, I, it's, it's understandable in the wake of this disaster. And by the way, Governor DeWine is not one of the people uh, who has been a Republican governor of a very red state, uh, has not been one of the people who's been uh, attacking the administration, particularly and asking for certain more targeted forms of relief. But he appears to want to uh, be able to, as a governor, restrict the carriage of hazardous materials through Ohio. Uh, this is an important question. It's why we have an interstate commerce clause. Um, that we can't allow each state to cherry pick what the safety regs are uh, for people transporting ec economically vital materials. What this should do and what I hope it will do is, is prompt us to have a serious, depoliticized, to the extent that's possible, conversation about how we maintain rail safety, how we ensure safe transit by whatever means of economically viable but inherently hazardous materials. Uh, and how we respond effectively to clean them up when there are accidents, as there always will be. David, all great points. You know, let me just say this about Buttigieg. I think he should have been there. Uh, there is no partisan situation involved here uh, as far as anything is concerned. He is the head of transportation in this country. Uh, he's in charge of infrastructure. Problem with that rail line, he should have been there. He should have been there because of what happened. We don't know if it's even safe there for those those fine folks, my goodness, what they're going through. Um, yeah. And it's a shame. And I look at the history of Buttigieg. I'm not happy with how he handled South Bend as a mayor. That was a disaster from everything I've read. 
regarding roads. Uh, I look at uh, his history as transportation secretary. AWOL during the railroad strike. Uh, possible rail strike, rather. He was in Portugal on some vacation. Maternity took off a couple of months without telling anybody. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a history here I'm not happy about. Um, he's more concerned about having too many white construction workers on the scene. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm very concerned about some of the behavior aspects of these individuals in this cabinet. I go to Mallorcas at the border. There's a pattern here, and it, it's it's not good. But that's, you know... Listen, he's going there today. Let's see what happens. Uh, so we shall see, my friend. Always great it's having you on. You know give me, give me a final word on that. Go ahead. No, I just, I, I'm going to be interested to see what he says in the speech today. Uh, he did concede yesterday that he uh, should have been speaking out about this earlier, uh, and uh, how he rolls that, if he rolls that into a mea culpa, as well as a statement of what the. Uh, trans- of what uh, transportation and presumably, I mean, he, I, I don't know if uh, uh, Reagan is, uh, is, is expected, the EPA administrator uh, is expected to be there as well, but uh, how they handle that interagency issue is going to be interesting to see as well. No question. David Burtzell.